Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. All right, so we're very excited to be back at Trauma Critical Care and Acute Care Surgery 2018, and we just uh, starting off the program with a really great panel um, talking about a lot of different topics, and we'll kind of cut right to the chase. I'm very uh, pleased to have uh, Dr. Matthew Martin from Madigan, Dr. Kinji Anama from USC, uh, Dr. Allison Wilson uh, from Morgantown, West Virginia, and Dr. Marty Schreiber from uh, OHSU in Portland. So welcome to Behind the Knife, everybody. Kenji, we'll start. Kenji, we'll start with you. So, you know, one of the things that you covered is kind of this difficult situation that comes up a lot of times with trauma, and that's that. What do you do with the patient uh, that comes in with a C-spine injury, and it turns out that the uh, C-spine is normal? Can you tell our listeners a little bit? How do you think and walk people through that process? I think uh, this for anyone that looks after a trauma patient is a critical issue because we never want to have that miss, right? The patient that comes in, they're neurologically intact. We miss the injury, and they leave with some sort of neurologic finding. So I think it, it's something that uh, weighs heavily on all of us. So everyone comes in, their spines are protected, um, and at some point, um, as early as possible, when all of the acute stuff has been dealt with, we need to clear that spine. And really, the first step is to do a clinical exam, and here in the United States, we would use the nexus low-risk criteria. And based on that, that's going to tell us who needs imaging and who doesn't need imaging. And if they're positive for one of those low-risk criteria, the imaging that we're recommending now is a CAT scan. And uh, I guess what's new and the reason why we're giving this talk today is the question that always used to come up is if that CAT scan is negative, what happens? Should we be getting an MRI? And I think the, the balance of the evidence that's available uh, today states that if that CAT scan is negative and it's adequate, then you're good to go. And probably the only patient set that you'd need to worry about is the, the patient set that comes in and there was a neurologic abnormality that it was the trigger for you to get that imaging. And I, I think for all of us in this room, um, and probably for all of your listeners out there, they would probably get an MRI anyways in that patient load. And I think the data would support that move. Can you, a little, just a follow-up, can you explain what you mean by a negative CT scan? Yeah, it's a good question. That was brought up on the panel today as well. And, you know, when we say negative, um, we want it to, uh, of course, not have an injury, but we also need for it to be an adequate CAT scan. And that adequate CAT scan would be a nice, normal CAT scan. And one of the big things that comes up is, what if there's degenerative changes on there? Well, I think all of our radiology colleagues would, uh, you know, agree with us that if, if there's degenerative changes, or anything that obscures your ability to truly state that it's a negative CAT scan, that's someone that would probably need to go on to further imaging. So one of the questions that comes up is, what is a patient that does not have any other distracting injuries, or they got a little bit of alcohol on board, and maybe it's they're not legally intoxicated, but you know, as the residents who listen to us come through the system, when can you rely on that clinical examination? And is there is it any distractor? Somebody's got a femur fracture, can you then not do that? Or somebody's got maybe an alcohol 0.04, but it's not that. So how do you weigh in these clinical factors into clearing the C-spine? So I'm going to, because Matt Martin's in the room, I'm going to let him come 
comments specifically on the talks part because um, one of the big things that he was interested in with this 10,000 patient study that we did was does the rule set apply to patients that come in talks positive? And he had some really interesting findings about how we practice in the U.S. and, and you know what the take-home message was. The, the one thing I would say about the distracting injuries, though, I think is a very important point. When they did the Nexus uh, study, the initial first go-around, they made sure that uh, when we said a distracting injury, that was going to be left up to each individual clinician to decide what was and what was not a distracting injury. Because the reality is, if you take a look at distracting injuries in general, there's no way that we could put together the combination of injuries that would constitute a distracting injury. Because in, in one patient, a femur fracture plus a right humerus fracture may be distracting. In another patient, they could have that plus, you know, 10 rib fractures and it wouldn't be distracting. So because of the patient variability and the multiple combinations of injuries that are available, there's no way to really come up with a rule set. So it was left up to each individual clinician. So you as the provider have to go up and make that decision for yourself. Does the burden of injury that this patient have constitute a distracting injury or are they able to comply with your exam. And I think both the evidence as well as our practice shows that it's probably a doable sort of thing. And, and every day across this country, you know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of times, we're applying that clinical judgment and making that decision. Yeah, so in regard to distracting injury, I, I'd say generally I think our thinking has evolved. We used to consider, if, if they had any fracture, we would call that a distracting injury. And, and I think it's evolved to now where... It's really if the patient can focus on your C-spine exam. If they have an injury that doesn't allow them to focus on that exam, that's distracting. But if they can focus, if they have a femur fracture, but they can, they, they can talk to you and say, yeah, my neck doesn't hurt and focus on your exam, then that's not a distracting injury. Uh, regarding the intoxicated patient, th those are the bane of you know, most trauma centers' existence because your choices were either keep them in the C-collar until their alcohol cleared, or also called the metabolized to freedom pathway, right? Or... Or image them, but then you get a CT scan and you say, well, they're drunk. We still can clear them clinically. Do I need to get an MRI? Uh, so I think those patients, the, the evidence is pretty clear that if the CAT scan, again, is, is normal and they're at least moving all four extremities, that you can take the collar off. You don't need to keep them there. You don't need to let them metabolize. Uh, and, and you now avoid all those downsides of prolonged, unnecessary immobilization. So maybe just for the panel, I'll give two patient scenarios, and you each can tell me if you would remove the C's collar or not. So the first patient um, is a patient with that's examinable, um, not intoxicated, no distracting injuries, normal CT scan, but still complaining of uh, pain and tenderness. Um, second patient is a patient that's unexaminable, intubated, um, with uh, a normal CT scan. Okay, so, so first patient who only has pain, yes, remove the collar. You can give them a soft collar for comfort. And the second patient, as long as I've seen them move all four extremities and stone cold normal CT, I would remove it. And no MRI and for no either. MRI. So patient with the uh, neck pain, I would keep in a collar. Uh, the patient who has is obtunded and has a CT scan barring that there's, and again, normal being, uh, meaning no degenerative change and things, then I would, I'd be comfortable doing that. But again, normal doesn't just mean no fractures. It means no abnormal changes on the CT scan. For the first patient, are you going to get an MRI or are you going to just leave the C-collar on until the pain resolves? No, what, what we do in our practice is we leave the cervical collar on. 
um, give them time for that, some of that muscle spasm to resolve. And then if they're uh, minorly injured, they're going home, they would see us and follow up in clinic. Uh, and then we could either decide if we we're going to do flexion extensions or take them out of the collar in clinic. Many times if their neck pain resolves, they take themselves out of the collar. If the patient's going to stay in the hospital, then we would reevaluate them each day. And if their tenderness went away, we'd take it off. At OHSU, uh, first patient gets flexion extension views. So we take off the collar, send them to radiology. They move their own, do their own movement. If they can do 30 degrees uh, flexion extension and there's no evidence of ligamentous injury, collar off, cleared neck. Second patient, we clear their, we clear their C-spine. So uh, for us, if there's a prolonged period of time, we're not going to be able to fully evaluate them. They have a normal CT, collar off, no MRI. Right. And I think the final last word I heard came up on the panel discussion too was just make sure every place you go to has a you know a defined algorithm how everybody handles it and within the practice. So uh, moving on, Doctor Doctor Martin, with your your talk on rubella, I feel like every time I come to a trauma conference, you know, we always have these the first talk on rubella and the current updates, and we hear you know the ups and downs of everything. Could you give us a quick summary of what you know you spoke about today? Uh, sure. So so I gave the talk about rubella. And, and I agree. Every meeting now, we're hearing talks on Roboa. Every debate seems to be pro-con Roboa, going over the same points. We don't have a lot of data. Um, my talk was focused mainly on the recent military experience with Roboa, where we really just recently have widespread uh, equipped our forward surgical units in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria with Roboa. And so we had to sort out how to do that, how to train everyone. And, and what we would consider as certified to use it. So, so really that was the focus of my talk. Um, and, and what we did is we developed a training program. We decided who we think should be trained, and that's general surgeons, emergency medicine physicians who are with a general surgeon, a forward surgical team, and, and then obviously uh, subspecialties of vascular and cardiothoracic. Uh, we, we created a training program that's, that's somewhat similar to the best course and include a simulation and, and have implemented that. And, and now the tail end of that is we need to monitor that. We need to monitor that. We need to collect the data because on the military side, I can tell you our, our data is bad. We have data that says the patient survived for one to two hours and then they left our facility and we don't know what happened to them. So, so that is not adequate data for Roboa because we know there are significant potential downstream complications. Uh, the civilians are doing a much better job at, there's a, there's a central registry. There's a nationwide data collection on it. There's already been a couple papers published on it. And there's a randomized trial that just started in the U.K. So better data is on the way. And I, the main thing that I thought that Dr. Martin stated in his uh, talk today that I think really struck home was that Roboa can be both a life-saving tool, but Roboa improperly utilized can be a life-taking tool. And, and that balance of understanding when and who uh, I thought was very, very well delivered today. You know, uh, to the panel, and Marty, I'll start with you. The, this calls in a larger question about how do we implement technology into practice? And, you know, a lot of times, as we know, many things that we do in the civilian sector start with the military. And you, similar to Matt, were the traumas are back uh, a few years ago and, you know, had this kind of this practice. Can you give some thoughts about how we have this, where we want to make sure that we're on the cutting edge of implementation or things that are good, but at the same thing, you're, we, we don't know exactly whether it is definitely good or bad, and you're all, only found in hindsight. So how do we go about that practice? 
So, you know, it's a good question and, you know, different people do this differently. Some are early changers and some wait a little bit. Uh, in our practice, we sort of want to see, see a little bit of data, see how things are going, see if there's some major issues. A lot of technologies, you know, they get tried out and then boom, they get thrown out. So we want to see a little bit of data, show some evidence that, that something is going to have a benefit. And once that data is available, we want to get involved. So we want to get involved relatively early. Uh, in situations where uh, the technology seems to benefit the patient without a tremendous amount of risk. And then it involves training the staff, it involves training the faculty, the, re the nurses, and everybody else that's going to be involved with this technology. And once everybody's trained, we bring the technology in. We've got to get it approved. Everything costs money. So you've got to go through the administrative costs of getting materials. Like, a, for instance, Roboa, a catheter costs $2,000. So our uh, administration approved us to have five catheters in our emergency department, five in our ICU, 10 total. You know, that's a lot of expense. So again, you know, make sure the technology is safe, make sure the technology seems to be a benefit, make everybody aware of it, train everybody, and be ready. You know, the best technologies are ones that are sort of widely uh, available because you practice with them and you use them a lot. You know, you know most centers aren't going to use that many Reboa catheters. And that's why we only have five in our emergency department, five in our ICU. So to that point, uh, so maybe back to Dr. Martin. So um, you, you talked a little bit about the dangers of Reboa, and there's certainly there's a lot of pressure to move this technology further and further forward. In the military setting, there's uh, a lot of interest in having this far forward and put in by medics, and um, uh, perhaps you know some of the like the, the UK stuff we're seeing have pushed farther and further forward. What do you tell those people? What should we be cautious about when pushing this that far forward? Well, I, I think the point I made at the end was. We need to sort this out in the in-hospital setting before we start pushing this out because we still don't have it completely sorted out. And, and when you have something that a fully trained surgeon, you know, still is, is not real comfortable with mm -hmm. and is not real sure about who's the patient that benefits and how to implement this, and then we're saying let's give it to a medic, you know, or, or a PA who's not at a unit with a surgeon, I, I think that's a, a little bit premature uh, at this point. And, and, and we, tend to, we tend to try and be early adopters and push these things forward, and, and they're, they're out of a good, it comes from a good place. Right. It's we, we want to get things to the front line and to help our soldiers as much as possible. Right? But, but we, we have to make sure these things are safe. And, and Reboa is something that, like Allison mentioned, Reboa has got a defined serious downside if used improperly. So, so we really need to get a good handle on this before we start pushing it out. And, and just relating to the London experience, you have to remember they're talking about pre-hospital Reboa, but that's a physician who's going out you know, in the ambulance and placing those or in the helicopter crew. It's not a medic. It's, it's not a PA. It's a trained traumatologist, you know, usually emergency medicine physician who's placing those. So moving on to a, a technology that's been around a little bit longer and is perhaps a little more appropriate for the far forward setting. Uh, Dr. Wilson, you, you talked today about uh, tourniquet use. Uh, what are some of the current challenges, current problems um, that you've seen and that you outlined in your talk today? So I think, again, tourniquets, there are a lot of lessons learned uh, from the military folks. And I think there was a lot of exuberance about it's it saved so many lives because of bleeding extremities in the military setting and the translation immediately to the civilian setting. And I think some things were lost in translation. One, 
early application of tourniquets on uh, bleeding extremities in the military, you have to remember is they're still getting shot at, and it's still a tactical environment. So you have to do what's going to be the most sure to stop the bleeding. And if you're in a tactical environment in the civilian setting, I think that's still very appropriate. But uh, most of the time when I'm seeing things or hearing stories or reading the journals and it's improperly placed, a lot of it, it's not that. So really being sure that we're embracing the education that we're rolling out, make sure we're messaging it appropriately. BCON, as you, as you talk with folks and you teach the courses, identifying significant hemorrhage and then the steps, a progressive stepwise to how do you get to that so direct direct pressure followed by packing and then the tourniquet i think is really important so our engagement and our messaging i think is central to being able to be sure that uh, we're doing it in the appropriate patients for the right indication um and and then maintaining the training and you know in the military uh you have all these training opportunities you're training people from the day one to get into the military to learn how to use a tourniquet what opportunities or, or educational things have you found to be the most uh effective in training people in the civilian world so you know right now we're doing most of our training for our internal people as well as for uh we actually have an affiliation with uh, some special operations medics uh I think the highest fidelity, but certainly not practical for the general public, is a perfused cadaver model. I think it's going to be a great model to train, um, select people, groups, et cetera. I think further application, like teaching people how to do shunts and tourniquet conversion and really training surgeons, I think that specific training model is going to be a game changer for surgical training. Um, but, uh, you know, other than that, our involvement in the community has really been through the basic BCON course. Uh, there was a very good paper put out by Kenji, or uh, I don't know if it's out yet or not, but the they did a survey of the um, EMS force in L.A., and 45% of them did not feel comfortable packing a wound. That's professional EMS. So we really need to go back and look at what is the education we're giving to our professional and volunteer EMS communities. So we're going to transition now. And Marty, one of the things that you talked about is the um, is transfusion. And it seems like every trauma meeting I've ever gone to, we still go back to these same concepts of what's the proper way to transfuse. For a while, it was the, what, what's all about the ratios. Now we're talking about a whole blood and, and about the ability to have component therapy. Can you walk how you, through how you think about it in a civilian setting in a, in a trauma center? And, and what, what is the role of whole blood today? And can we access it? Can anybody get it? And, uh, and let our listeners know. So I really think about patients in two, two, two ways. You know, you have the patient who's, who's massively exsanguinating, audible hemorrhage, clearly bleeding. That's, a, that's one type of blood bank. And I think that the best resuscitation fluid for that patient from the very beginning of when we resuscitated patients all the way back to the Civil War has been whole blood. Uh, unfortunately, back somewhere around the 70s or 80s, that, that strategy got lost and we started going to red cells and we were treating red cells more or less like whole blood. And then more recently, we started realizing, well, we need all the other stuff that comes in whole blood. So we started putting the plasma and the platelets back in and thinking about cryo. So we've gone full circle now back to the Civil War. And now we're saying, if I have a massively exsanguinating patient, I need to give them what they're bleeding. They're bleeding whole blood. They're not bleeding red cells alone. They're not bleeding plasma alone. They're bleeding whole blood, so that's what we need to give them. So whole blood now, you know, this, this concept is, is fully entrenched in the civilian world. The American Red Cross, as one, one type of company, recognizes it and now has made a commitment to supply whole blood for massively exsanguinating patients. 
And that means it's in the trauma centers. That could equally be true in rural centers or anywhere else. It's, what, it's what's when the donor gives the blood, they give whole blood. And that product can be used anywhere that people are donating blood. They can be stored up for 35 days. So it's a, it's a very logistically feasible product. There's no reason why for massively bleeding patients you wouldn't use it. Now, having said all of that, we still have the majority of patients who don't need whole blood. The majority of patients uh, aren't bleeding massively. Maybe they're oncologic patients. Maybe they're undergoing general surgical procedures. Maybe they just need a unit or two of red cells. Maybe they're uh, anticoagulated. They need a little bit of plasma. Maybe they have a platelet defect and they, need, and they need platelets. That's the majority of patients. So when we speak at these meetings, we're talking about the massively exsanguinating patient, and that's the one who's going to get whole blood. We still need the common blood bank that we are used to, all of us here in the room are used to, one that uses components. And we're still going to have to have that as well. But for that massively exsanguinating patient, that patient should get whole blood. Why, why isn't this more widespread? I mean, it seems to be very common sense. Uh, we've all seen whole blood work. Um, it's pretty clear that it works. What's been the, some of the limitations or some of the challenges to making this more widespread? Well, there's logistical challenges as well as sort of uh, inertia. You know, blood banks move slowly. You don't see a lot. Of, you don't see. You generally don't see rapid changes occurring in blood banks. So I think we, number one, had to overcome the inertia. But once you overcome the inertia, there's some real logistical problems with whole blood. And really, what it comes down to is when we think about transfusion, we think about how we transfuse red cells, how we transfuse platelets, how we transfuse plasma. And now we're we're transfusing all of them together in a single product. So one major problem is. The universal donor for red cells is type O. The universal donor for plasma is type AB. So what's going to be the universal donor for whole blood? And what it comes down to is the universal donor for, for whole blood can be type O, low titer to A and B. So, and most donors have low titers. So we can still use universal donors. So that's one issue. The other issue is, the, is we know that female plasma is associated with trolley. And we don't transfuse female plasma in the United States and many other countries. So the, the whole blood has to come from males. So this is another uh, feasibility problem. And then finally, the last one is the O-positive blood. Uh, and so for, for women of childbearing age, you need O-negative. So these are, you know, so really all of the problems of transfusion with type-specific issues are sort of magnified because you're giving all the products with a single whole blood transfusion. Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, thanks to Dr. Schreiber, Dr. Wilson, Dr. Martin, and Dr. Inaba. We're here at the Trauma Critical Care and Acute Care Surgery Meeting in Las Vegas, 2018. Thank you very much for being with Behind the Knife. Thank you. Okay, so welcome back to another episode uh, of BTK. We're going to talk a little bit more here at uh, TCCACS uh, 2018 here in Vegas. And uh, we're very pleased to have Chris Grabari here, who is a clinical associate professor of surgery in the Colorado Health System out of Loveland, Colorado, as well as Lynette Shear, who is also the uh, trauma medical director in Sacramento, California. Welcome to Behind the Knife. Thanks for having us. So we're just going to do a little recap of the panel. We had a fantastic panel talking about getting us out of difficult situations. And Chris, you talked a little bit about the difficult gallbladder. We'll start with you. And uh, so can you give our audience just a little bit of a recap about what do you do? You take somebody to the operating room and you're looking up there and you think it's going to be easy and you're like, oh, no. Yeah, I think that uh, the paper from USC that we uh, 
showed it uh, during the conference really depicts this. So um, they identified that they were having difficulty, not able to see the critical view of safety, and uh, maybe even tried to take the gallbladder down from dome down. Many times they chose to open and uh, persist, and when they attempted to uh, proceed even in an open fashion, they had a 3.3% bile duct injury rate uh, with open. And so I think the answer is not necessarily opening, um, but they did subtotal cholecystectomy, or what I like to call damage control cholecystectomy, and uh, they had no bile duct injuries. And so I think going back to the old adage of do no harm, uh, I think knowing that you're in trouble and knowing how to get out safely without causing uh, a bile duct injury is important. So the two types, fenestrated or reconstituting uh, types, are, are out there. Um, and the fenestrated type is where you actually try to put a purse string suture in the cystic duct orifice from within the infundibulum. Uh, you're not trying to dissect out the cystic duct and getting yourself into trouble. Um, in the reconstituting type, you're essentially uh, stapling, uh, stapling or closing that uh, lower bio, uh, com, uh, gallbladder remnant, uh, and it's typically with a stapling device. And there's pros and cons for each. Um, I think that uh, if you can't do a fenestrated uh, uh, type, in other words, put that suture in to close the cystic duct. I pre uh, my preference is to put place a drain and to just get out and deal with the bile duct leak later. Um, with the reconstituting type, the concern here is the patients that will later develop recurrent uh, symptoms. And I'll tell you, going back and having to take out that that remnant, uh, uh, coal, uh, for, which is then inflamed again, uh, is not an easy operation. So I tend to to lean towards using the fenestrated type. I think the tips there are to making sure that you're removing all stones and debris that you can. Um, uh, and we, uh, I, I think it's still even better to do a reconstituting type than cause a bile duct injury. So. So you touched on something very important there, and I think that's, um, you know, kind of the classic teaching is when you're having trouble with a difficult gallbladder, uh, you know, convert to open. But uh, I think what you're getting at is a lot of times that doesn't help you because you're not going to have better visualization open than you have laparoscopically. And do you th how much of this do you think has to do with just the difference in how we're trained now, where you have surgeons that are now you know, very adept coming out of residency, very adept laparoscopically where they might not be as, uh, skilled with, uh, an open cholecystectomy. Yeah. I think you hit on a great point. Uh, the contemporarily trained, uh, uh, surgeon, uh, tends to have maybe less experience with an open cholecystectomy. Um, but I think that we have to remember today that bile duct injury rate uh, for open versus laparoscopic are essentially equivalent. That, that rate's equivalent to the pre-laparoscopic error. So something we shouldn't forget. So to the both of you, uh, you get in there and everything just falls apart and you got stones in different places. How much should people go after those stones that are hidden? Is, is it okay to leave some uh, stones uh, in the body? Uh, what, what happens to those? How often does it form an abscess? And, uh, or, or we just get out of dodge and kind of go from there? 
Um, well, I personally get the ones I can get and don't fret too much about the ones that I can't. Um, and just a quick follow-up on what Chris was saying about fenestrated uh, versus not. I'm a fan of doing uh, just a subtotal cholecystectomy and not going after um, not going after the duct. Just leave a drain uh, because I think the risk is the is the bile duct injury and doing anything extra down there in an inflamed field I think increases your risk for that. And I would be much happier with a bile duct leak that I could manage with an ERCP. So I think, you know, a lot of the times, you know, when you do that, the cystic, if their gallbladder is really in that bad of shape, their cystic duct is obliterated anyway. How do you, talk to me a little bit how you would manage though, um, if you leave a drain and then they do have a, have a leak, how do you manage those patients? Um, so we leave the drain um, in 100% of the cases where we don't take out the entire gallbladder, we leave a drain and we follow the drain output over the next day or so. If they have a high output, a couple hundred milliliters out of the drain, they'll get an ERCP uh, the following day. And that almost always takes care of it with their sphincterotomy. We leave the drain until they eat and it's dry. I think another interesting question is uh, how do you approach a patient who has severe cholecystitis and a gastric bypass patient? The so often uh, the gastric bypasses are being done laparoscopically or minimally invasive as well. Right. And so uh, that doesn't preclude me from starting with uh, the laparoscope. It's the common duct stones that are Yeah, exactly. Right. right. So let's say you have somebody who's got, and you end up having to do a fenestrated cholecystectomy. Um, they've had a history of a prior ruin. Why? Is that going to change what you're going to do? Because uh, you, you, you lose that option of doing that ERCP with the sphincterotomy afterwards. Or is there anything you're going to do additionally? Uh, I, I may spend a little bit more time uh, attempting to uh, truly secure that cystic duct uh, by putting a purse string suture uh, in that cystic duct orifice or, or down it towards the base of the infundibulum. But I agree with Lynette that if it's really inflamed and you can't tell, I think you're better off leaving it. We do have uh, surgical endoscopists that are that have been successful at doing ERCP despite having uh, had the ruin Y. And just one quick comment about those. Um, if you have access to your endoscopists who can come to the operating room and do it through a transgastric approach right. for you at the same time, knowing that about a third of these are going to go on to require an ERCP anyway, that maybe in that select population, you just go ahead and do that. What about any of those adjuncts, like the, the, the different fibrin sealants, anything like that? Any, is that just voodoo or? I have no experience in, in using those in, in this setting. I don't use anything fancy. So let's switch gears a little bit now. Lynette, you talked a little bit about what the general surgeon should know in terms of orthopedic injuries and things we can do to try to help out in that scenario. So can you walk our listeners through a little bit of recap of what you talked about today's session? Sure. I think the big one is really focusing on getting patients with open fractures, their antibiotics early. The goal is to try to get them within 60 minutes. And I fully realize that in some rural settings, the patient may not even get to the hospital in 60 minutes, but the focus is on delivering the antibiotics as early as possible. It's as important as your secondary survey. So we want to get the antibiotics in. Um, the other things that we have within our control are how long the patients are receiving antibiotics. I think we're of the vintage where um, many of these patients were on antibiotics for weeks, and uh, the focus on getting them turned off within 24 to 72 hours is uh, key. Um, 
femur fractures. I think that's pretty well accepted that people are focused on getting the femur fractures fixed early. But as we see uh, fewer and fewer orthopedic surgeons willing or able to cover uh, trauma centers, we're starting to see a little bit of a pushback on how quickly those femur fractures should be stabilized. And we want to really push to get them stabilized early. Um, timing for the OR. There was a time when we really pushed our orthopedic colleagues to get these patients to the operating room quickly within six hours from time of arrival. We now have pretty solid evidence that for, especially for the lower grade injuries, that these can be done within the next 24 hours. They don't have to be done uh, as soon as the patient arrives, uh, except for the grossly contaminated wounds, which should be washed out um, as soon as possible. And DVT prophylaxis, I think trauma surgeons are very uh, comfortable starting DVT prophylaxis on people who have recently been bleeding to death um, and getting our orthopedic colleagues uh, online with that, I think is critical for these people who are very high risk for DVT. I'd like to dive a little bit further into those contaminated wounds. So what exactly constitutes a good washout for you? Is a washout in the ER enough or does it need to be in the operating room? Sure. I think that's a great question. Um, as Dr. Krabari stated on the uh, panel, the the, the washout that counts in your trauma registry and probably for the patient is the one that happens in the operating room. So, um, you know, a little squirt squirt in the ER makes us all feel better and we always wash the dirt off before we splint them, but we don't consider that a washout. The washout's in the operating room where the devitalized tissue is uh, debrided and the wound is uh, washed out. So to the both of you, how do you weigh in the timing of VTE prophylaxis in the trauma patient who has and who does not have a head injury? So I think that uh, this is an area where each uh, trauma medical director usually has to sit and meet with the uh, neurosurgical pan panel, the liaison to the trauma program, and, and come to some agreement. Um, we believe that the literature uh, supports uh, that you can safely start DVT prophylaxis within 48 hours of a stable CAT scan. And so when does that clock start ticking? Um, if you get a CAT scan on admission, shows a small amount of subarachnoid blood, and uh, you get a repeat CT scan in six to eight hours, and there's no change, then that's when the uh, 20, uh, 48 hours from that second CT, you're able to go ahead and start DVT prophylaxis. Now, that doesn't mean uh, full anticoagulation, mm -hmm. and that's the area I think that we still are unsure what the data supports. It's really tough when you have that patient that also has a blunt cerebrovascular injury, something that, that you're feeling pressed to go ahead and, and start full anticoagulation for. And uh, I don't know what Lynette does in those instances, but that's a challenge that I, I still see a lot of trauma programs around the country uh, facing. Dr. Shear. Yes, we. Um, I agree that communication with the ortho, with the uh, neurosurgeons is critical, and sometimes it has to be over and over and over um, to get group consensus there. And I have found that if we can get consensus on just the majority of the, sort of the the lower level injuries, so we don't have to ask every day, um, that works. But invariably, there's discussion on the the patients with more complicated wounds. But we too like to start it within 24 to 48 hours after stable CT, depending upon what kind of bleeding they had. Do either of you have any experience with the, you know, the temporary, the catheter, temporary IVC filters and using those in trauma patients? Yeah, I think you're speaking about the angel catheter. And, and uh, we do have some experience with that. I personally still have concern about a line, uh, a femoral line and the infectious risks. 
And I think the data still um, isn't convincing to me that that's not a concern. Um, it's it's not without uh, risk. It also uh, takes um, at least uh, an IR procedure to inject contrast, making sure how much clot is captured in that filter at the time of removal. Um, we have never been uh, uh, pushing uh, prophylactic cable filter placement, except for in the group of patients that actually has a PE and known DVT where there's an absolute contraindication for anticoagulation. And there, I'll use a temporarily removable uh, vena cava filter rather than the temporary filter. But uh, we tend to use chemoprophylaxis uh, rather than the angel catheter. Dr. Okay. Chair, anything to add on that? Um, just that I think when there's ever there's new technology for cable filters that sometimes people really jump on the bandwagon and end up putting these uh, filters in without good indications. And it always gives me um, angst to see patients getting interventions that they probably don't need. Um, as I see it as a, um, a central line in the groin, which we know are, have a high infection rate, and you're damaging the vein that you're trying to protect. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. One last question. We got a lot of uh, residents and medical students and trainees that listen to the show. Best thing that you guys like about trauma in acute care surgery? Well, I think it's the breadth, and I, I think this is what general surgery used to be. Uh, obviously, there's reason for the subspecialization that's occurred in in general surgery, um, but personally, um, I enjoy the breadth. I am also a vascular surgeon. Um, and uh, so I, it, it, it's a good mix for me. I, I love vascular trauma, um, and I enjoy critical illness. I enjoy surgical critical care and taking care of the, the sickest of the sick patient. Yeah, I um, I love making a difference. These patients are sick, um, and they're going to die without intervention, and I love that part. And um, I like the part that um, I'm still truly a general surgeon, so I, too, do vascular. Um, you know, we do our own cardiac wounds, all of the um, belly work. So I think the breadth of what we do is great, um, and it's nice to make a difference, feel like you make a difference when you go to work every day. Well, Dr. Shear and Dr. Kubari, thank you for joining us on Behind the Knife today after a panel discussion. We enjoyed having you guys, and we hope to have you back again in the future. So, thanks, guys. Yeah. yeah, thanks for having us. Until next time, dominate the day.